Here we go, season seven. All aboard. If you missed it, here's what we believe. 66 book canon. We believe in a 66 book canon. There is no more, there is no less. It's 66 books. That Yeshua, who is preached by the apostles in the gospels and in the epistles, is the only means of salvation, as we are calling Yeshua, means. In other words, justification is by faith alone and not by works that any man should boast. Faith working through love. We are unashamedly Trinitarian. We're also unashamedly uh, doctor, believe in the doctrines of grace, what is commonly referred to as Calvinistic. The, the new covenant is not time-bound. That is to say that the, the horizon of the faith of our father Abraham is no different. Right. No, no, it is not shy of the horizon of our hope and our faith. In other words, the, that the salvation was salvation was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Right. Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. This is Messiah Matters, number 292. Still figuring out how to use our new email service. My name is Caleb Hag. Glad the spring is almost here. (laughs) Even though we've got a cold front coming in, we're supposed to get a couple inches of snow this weekend. I'm Rob Danoff. Yes. So for those who receive our show notes, we just switched email services. And if you have not figured it out yet, I haven't figured out how to use this email service completely. This is why your show notes today said show 291 um, are the righteous judged or something like that. It was last week's title. I apologize. Still figuring it out. How you been, brother? How you doing? I'm doing well. Praise God. You know, you guys have a cold front coming in. We got ants already waking up. That's always bad. Anyway, um, yeah, hi to everybody in the chat room. By the way, can, can I just mention something about the chat room? I love the people in the chat room. I love the chat room, and I love the, the conversations that go on. Now, one of the things that I don't like is when people come in and start posting links or saying, oh, you guys should watch this video, or when they come in and decide that they are the greatest teacher that has entered the chat room and that they're going to inform everyone of these really weird beliefs. We got some comments last time, last week, that the chat room was just all over the place, and I agree it was. I kept putting people in timeout, and then the people who were being put in timeout kept crying foul. Uh, here's here's the the thing. I mean, I'm the guy with the button. I you know I'm trying to do two things at one time. I'm trying to talk to Rob and watch the heresy that some people not. I mean, most of the people in there are great. 
But every once in a while, you get these these people who decide that, that they're going to spout the heresy in the chat room. Now, if I accidentally put somebody in timeout who wasn't spouting heresy or didn't post a link, I apologize. I usually try to give a couple of good, you know, timeouts before I ban someone from the channel. That's only happened a couple of times. But uh, no apologies here. I mean, it's my chat room, right? It's our chat room. It's your and my chat room. We get to ban whoever we want, right? Uh, I should give some. Uh, I should give some authority to some of the some of the regulars in the chat room so they can take over banning people. <laughs> that would be funny. We could change people's names to like you know their real name and then in captions like police officer or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm playing. Okay. Well, uh, it's been an interesting week for me. I got a lot going on, and I, I my studies are all over the place. Are you studying something specific right now? Because you're you. Well, I'm you, always studying. But you didn't submit. Stuff. You didn't submit in time for SBL, right? Not for the Masora section, but I did submit to a new section that I've never submitted to before. And what so section we'll is that? Um, Bible in ancient media. Ooh. And. So, and of course, I, I mean, it's Masora related, but it has to do with uh, the Aleppo Codex and the for what's called the First Leningrad Bible, which are from like 930 BC, or nine, not BC, <laughs> 930 Common Era or AD. Um, and so I'm, we'll see, we'll see. I have, I have an idea. I typed it up and sent it in. I think we find out in April. Boy, you know, they've been canceling all these conferences this spring. I canceled out of, we're afraid of coronavirus, you know, da, da, da. It's like, okay, well, we'll see. Dude, if the coronavirus is not gone by November, somebody's not doing their job. I don't know who, but yeah. somebody is not doing their job right. Um, but other than that, so that's a specific thing, but I'm always, I mean, I'm always, I'm a learner, you know, and so I'm always reading and trying to expand my understanding of bigger pictures. Whether it's, you know, what I've been doing on this these short weekly videos is going through uh, whatever fragments we have. I usually pick, if there's a fragment from the weekly tour portion that we have from Qumran, I'll grab an image off the Dead Sea Scrolls um, digital library website, which has all these images, and then I'll go through and talk about that fragment, and I'll look at the Hebrew compared to the Masoretic text, but lately, because there's a couple of, for because we're in Exodus in the one-year cycle, I've been looking at manuscripts that are in the Paleo-Hebrew. So they're pre, even though they were found at Qumran, they're older than the Qumran community. They were brought to Qumran probably from Jerusalem, maybe by some disgruntled Essene priests or something like that. We don't know where, where they, in terms of where they were originally written, probably in Jerusalem. And then they made their way out to Qumran to be part of the library. But anyway, but we just have little pieces, right? You know, just enough to say, yeah, this is a passage from Exodus, right? And so, anyway, uh, so that's really been a really eye-opening experience. And I try to make these videos really short, like five to ten minutes. Um, but it's helped me to kind of get in that mindset of scribes in the second century, or well. Second century BC is when they those were written, but 
all the Qumran texts span, you know, 200 years time frame where scribes were producing texts and texts from outside Qumran were brought and right. uh, stored there and in different handwriting, you know, different scripts, uh, of course, different languages. We have Hebrew, Aramaic, we have Greek at Qumran. So you've got quite a library. So I've started learning more about that and, and um, it's, it's pretty cool. You know, and, and then the question is, you know, who are the scribes that Yeshua is talking to in the in the Gospels? Um, and this might get into some of our anticipate some of our question concerning. I think we're talking about Daniel today and Esther, um, but the scribes that Yeshua is interacting with are what what I'm going to call Tanakh scribes. They're scribes that adhere to a canon that was preserved and maintained from the temple centric in Jerusalem scribes and priests working together and sometimes priests were also scribes that they they weren't preserving a book of Enoch for example you know what I mean if you wanted a book of Enoch you wouldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem if you wanted to read the book of Jubilees you wouldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem they're like yeah we don't copy that book you have to go so you have to go somewhere else right now if you wanted if you wanted the Torah or prophets or writings that's where that's where you know you would go. Um, so it seems that you know this Qumran community developed as a central library for stuff that the temple said, yeah, we don't care about that. You know, we're not we're not uh, worried about preserving that book or that tradition. So anyway, it's a uh, cool man. Stuff. I'm I'm deep in the in the midst of Acts 15. Mm. I've been teaching through Acts. At our congregation, um, it's been about a year I've been teaching. We just hit chapter fifteen. Cool. And yeah, I have a lot more to say than I think <laughs> most people. Uh, okay. You, you can write a book bigger than uh, Keener's. <laughs> bigger than what? Keener's. Oh no, I I don't think that's possible. Oh, I thought you said you you have more to say about it. Than... Yeah, than most people. Definitely okay. not. Definitely not Keener. Keener has the most to say about everything. Actually, when you look at Keener's work, it's you know I I love Dr. Keener and, and I always enjoy seeing him and, and chatting with him and, and he's just such a gracious person. Um, so I, this is not a dig on him in any way, shape, or form. When you read his work, actually, it's interesting what he leaves out. He writes so much, and it's everything that he writes is important for the subject, and everything he writes shows the different aspects of what he's talking about but i can tell i can see where it's like okay he you know he has x amount you know he has 20 pages on circumcision in the first century at the beginning of you know acts 15 but he leaves out xyz you know like he doesn't talk about this which you know is it, but i can see why because you know for those who don't know dr keener has a a four volume uh, set on uh, four volume work on Acts. Each one of the volumes is about a thousand pages, I think. So you're That's looking big. at, I think you're looking at about four thousand pages. I could be wrong on that. Actually, no, I it's think, a, it's big. It's a lot. I think the last it, volume. So they're they're all about this big. I think the last volume might all be his his uh, footnotes or it, well, yeah, it's like references and and you know. Mm. And notes and stuff like that. I think I could be wrong about that too. I'll have to go look at it again. It's, it's amazing. And when I interviewed him on this show, um, 
he mentioned to me that his book on his two volume works on miracles was a footnote began as a footnote in his acts commentary. So one of his footnotes became a two volume work, (laughs) which is also, you know, each one of them is this big. So anyway, um, yeah, yeah, I certainly depending on how deep you want to go, you can write forever. All right. Let's get into it. We got some great emails. Great emails. Robbie wrote in, not only did he write, I could tell this was important to him, and these are great questions, by the way, because he texted me as well. Texted, he texted me as well. So not only did I get the email, but I got an, a text telling me I had an email. <laughs> That's how it's you like, know. I want to make sure this thing goes yeah, through. Yeah, exactly. You will speak of this, I promise. Um, well, and for good reason. He, uh, he says this. He has two topics that he wants us to talk about. We'll talk about both of them. Um, and yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen Robbie, and I can't wait to see him again. I hope I get to see him um, in July when we go to New Jersey. And for those who don't know, Rob and I are going to New Jersey. Um, we will be in New Jersey July, mid, July 17th, I believe. It's that weekend. Um, I know because I leave a day after my son's first birthday. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Robbie writes, so I hope I see you, Robbie. I hope I see you in, in New Jersey. Maybe not though. I know it's quite a drive. Um, I think he's in South Carolina anyway. Okay. I'm sorry. Now I'm rambling. Robbie writes and he says, we have used your dad's Sidur for about 10 years now. For those of you who don't know, my father is the president of Torah resource. He produced a Shabbat Sidur for Messianics. And that Sidur is what is used by many different groups around the United States and, and even around the world. Um, and he has attempted to produce a full week uh, daily sedur. Uh, he's about 85% done with it and has been about 85% done with it for about the p- past 15 years. So I don't see that being finished anytime in my lifetime. Anyway, he says, um, I can't tell you how much I love these prayers. They have become my own for a long time. When I would read all, and now this is a quote, all their firstborn you slew and the wicked you drowned, page 58. I always felt sorrow for them. It was a part of the prayers that was always hard for me. But a little while back, I started thinking if Hashem did not have mercy, pity, slash pity on them, should I? In other words, should I feel, feel sorrow for the unelect? If Hashem doesn't love them, should I? Let's just jump right into yeah, uh, right, right, Well, it reminds me of the uh, <laughs> the song of the sea, right? You know, Exodus fifteen. I just pulled that um, just to start off. So Exodus fifteen, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song unto Adonai, saying, "I will sing unto the Lord." This is a Ashira la Adonai ki from Steven Spielberg, uh, Prince of Egypt theme. He has highly exalted the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. So, and it goes on, you know, this is not the only example. Think about the song of Deborah, like you know, the song of Deborah, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's like it was talking about how uh, Sisera's mother is waiting. Like, how come he's how come he tarries? You know, how come he hasn't come back from battle yet? You know, like it's because he's dead. <laughs> you know, the idea is 
if what I'm hearing in Robbie's email is how are we as new creations in Messiah to understand passages that celebrate the destruction of the wicked? Is that, is that kind of what you're getting out of that? I think it's more, how are we supposed to understand, um, I mean, basically, should we feel remorse for those who have been uh, judged and judged by the Almighty? Or should we just assume that, uh, you know, this is the Almighty's will and, and, and be joyous in it? I, I'm with the latter. I'm with your second thing, that we rejoice in that this is his will. All of God's judgments are perfect. Yeah. Which means that in my mind, Psalm nineteen, yeah. But however, um, you know, and and those passages are really difficult because, you know, do we think that the scriptures are actually telling us that all the people that actually took, you know, were involved in this were, you know, it's it's almost like the the Nazis, you know, the guy who was the secretary was he at fault, you know, and ultimately, what did the I mean the 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 uh, courts decided, yes, there is faults. You're part of the machine. And so when when Egypt, if you're not leaving with Israel, when Egypt goes out against Israel to bring Israel back into captivity, are you who are you going? Who are you really going against? Are you really are you just the secretary or are you, you know, or are you flipping the switch to the gas chambers? It's the same kind of thing. Well, ultimately, the the Egyptians, if they weren't with Israel, if they weren't going out with Israel, who were they against? If they were coming out against Israel, they were really against Yodhevafe. They were really against God. The enemies of God will be judged, no doubt about it. And should we, in my mind, you know, it says in, I think it's uh, Psalm 5, you know, it uses really strong language. I think it's even in the Hebrew, God hates the wicked. Let's look it up so that my reference isn't, uh, and I see that the chat room is probably ablaze by this point. Hang on just a sec. Let me look this reference up real quick. To the choir master, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider, give attention to the sound of my cry. The Lord, uh, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Oh, boy, those are some strong words. But I, through the abundance of of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. I wrote, I actually, uh, I covered this chapter for uh, Hebrew Exegesis at Torah Resource Institute, which is why uh, this has a lot of meaning to me is because I've actually, you know, looked into this. Spent a lot of time there. Yeah. The but, other, I was thinking Caleb is in Deuteronomy. How many times it says, um, bringing a punishment your eyes shall not pity him you shall purge the blood of the innocent from israel that it may go well with you in other words the destruction of the wicked is necessary to vindicate the innocent right why are they wicked they're not wicked in themselves they're wicked is because they are they're doing evil to innocent people in other words and god is going to answer the prayers of the afflicted and the oppressed you know, Helen brings up a really good point here. She says, love your enemies, says Yeshua. Who are the enemies here? Is the evil, 
quote unquote evil peoples you are speaking about as well. Yeah, I think that when when uh, I think Yeshua's message of love your enemies is a bit different. First of all, if a person is still here on earth, we are. I mean, how are we to judge what what the Lord will do in that person's life? You know, when we look at some of the stories of salvation of of people coming to Christ, he has the Almighty has really saved people who were, were the lowest of the low, right? I mean, Israel itself is is a story of this. We see paganism. I've talked at length about this. We see paganism from the moment they come out of Egypt, even after they enter the land, right? Paganism has been a plague of Israel ever since they came out of Egypt. So, I mean... the Almighty saves the, those whom He will save. We, you know, I think that to look at a person and to say this person's going to hell, that's I don't know if I don't think that that is of the uh, of of the Almighty. But to say God's judgment has come upon a people, especially when the Scriptures say it, the horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. In other words, God's judgment. We know that God's judgment has come upon these people. Why? Because they were enemies of the Almighty. That's what I'm getting. Love your enemies. You know, I I think that there is something to be said for the idea of this might be uh, more specific to community issues. However, I also think that the the story of the Good Samaritan is a, you know, Yeshua's telling us, love the people who even socially you should, you're supposed to hate. Love the people who, you know, seem to hate you. And not necessarily the person that you just don't like it at your at your church or your synagogue or whatever it may be. You, you need to show love. And why? Because we're supposed to emulate Christ, and Christ, while you were still dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Messiah, right? So, I mean, while we were still dead, in other words, while we still hated Christ. I'm sorry, keep going. Well, the Torah commands, uh, along that where Yeshua says, bless those who curse you, right? Pray for those who persecute you and deceitfully use you so does that mean you're just a doormat for the world and just people can treat you anyway well the torah has a has a way of uh, approaching this when you're in a world where there's people hostile towards you is that there are a couple avenues that come to mind one is there's a category called the gare which is a very loose term in the torah but what it does, it holds space. This is what this is a primary function of the term gear is not that we're going to define it super price precisely and say, oh, you're a gear and you're not a gear. It holds a space for having mercy to the outsider generally and being able to um, and the requirement of, of to be God's covenant people, the requirement of loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and then that love expressing itself in all the commandments of necessity must hold space for an outsider that you do not prejudge right the instant you prejudge you put you slap a label on somebody and then you start treating that person according to the label rather than their soul that they have a soul so even in israel in egypt had interactions with egyptians that were going to be destroyed right and um and they there was an opportunity you know, even the Egyptians that said, here, take stuff, <laughs> you know, and some some clung to Israel and left with Israel and some did not, obviously. But but it wasn't the Jews or it wasn't Israel that were making that distinction. Israel weren't saying, you can come with us, you can't. You can come with us, you can't. They were just being obedient 
to Moses and following, and then people were drawn with them. And that has to be our primary social hermeneutic is that we trust, like Yeshua says, you know, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Does that mean every human being? No, but it means all the, the people that will be given the gift of faith will come. So the instant you have one group of believers creating a label and then slapping it on another group of believers and say, you guys don't belong because this, that's, that's where all the sectarian fragmentation happens in the second temple period. And even today you have Jews judging other Jews. And that's why the uh, Jews judging other Jews for non-Torah stuff. Right. And, and that's the Samaritan. That's why where the, you know, the Samaritan story kicks, kicks right at the heart. And you made this point. It was like, just because socially it was, it was, uh, it was, you know, what the thing to do was to hate Samaritans. Yeah. Those Samaritans, you know, how many Judeans hated Samaritans that had never even met a Samaritan? You know what I mean? Just because we, we just the, hate them. We have this, you know, we have the same kind of thing even today. You know, when we think of, I remember going to Israel and thinking, wait, there's, there's Arabs that believe, you know, there's Arabs that are Christians. And, you know, th there was this, right. you know, I had this mentality when I went there that the Jews were over here, the Arabs were over here. We hated, you know, these people hated these people, these people hated these people. And whatever side we aligned ourselves with meant we were going to hate the other side. And it's not like that. You know, the Armenian quarter was one of my favorite places to hang out in Israel. And the reason why was because you have a bunch of Arab Christians. They're believers. They're great conversations. They're great people who love the Lord. I ended up spending, I, I ended up staying in the Armenian quarter because I, I just really enjoyed the, the brothers and sisters there. Now, at the time, I wasn't walking with the Lord. So that's, that should be the caveat of, of that conversation. But, <laughs> um, you know, the other thing is, is that, I think we, you know, this conversation is a good conversation, but it's one that has actually brought theology that is uh, that is still debated. You know, I remember a couple years ago at family camp, somebody asked me if I was a pacifist. Well, this this conversation actually goes into different groups' ideas of pacifism. In other words, that we should not have. There should be no violence, you know, and, and who takes it to the extreme? Obviously, the, the Amish, right? The Amish believe that no matter what a person does, we should love our enemies and therefore we should forgive them. And and, and, that, and that's Gandhi's reading of Tolstoy. I think um, Gandhi had the same thing. He got a lot of his nonviolence was through, I think, I think it was through Tolstoy's reading of Resist Not Evil, which was he was a wasn't he um, Russian Orthodox or but he had kind of. Um, maybe separated off, but he had this total pacifist view of that that's the true Christianity, you know? And yeah, it, it, there's a definite stream of that. You know, and Alfred, Alfred in the chat room puts it perfectly. Paul, before coming to, to faith, was hostile to believers. In other words, we don't know what the Lord's going to do. And this is the point that I already made, but we don't know what the Lord's going to do with anybody. You know, the stories of of Muslims coming to uh, and back to my, you know, I'm now blending these these two points, but the the, the uh, testimonies of Muslims coming to Christ and having faith are unbelievable to me. They're 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 so uplifting and so such a wonderful thing to see. And so we need to remember that that even the people that we see, you know, we may think to ourselves, oh, this person is an enemy. 
you know, we need to be praying for these people. We need to be praying that the, that the Holy Spirit will move in a way that maybe even we can, you know, help bring the truth. Yeah, well, this ties into, you know, there's some people in in a Hebrew roots environment. Oh, those Christians are right, so wrong. and they're actually they're actually not loving towards someone who's not even attacking them. You know what I mean? Right. It's not it's not even a, and and it's I think Yeshua is like, look, you got to understand that God's love is bigger than this sectarian you know dispute. Right. Exactly. Um, and so we, it's on us to seek the Lord first and his kingdom and to, you know, live lives in accordance with, with the love commandment because he says all of it hangs on that. No doubt. Let's move on to Robbie's second question. He says, my second question is, how can we know the book of Daniel is legitimate? I believe it is, but on what basis can we know for sure? Also, the phrase, the watchers, is used in Daniel. Mm. The only other books I know of that use this phrase are the apocryphal writings like the book of Enoch. Could this discredit the book of Daniel at all? Okay, I will go first, if you don't mind. Okay, go ahead. Um, Because one of my... uh, I have actually used the book of Daniel to prove the authenticity of the, uh, the prophets within the Tanakh. And the reason why, well, I wrote this. I've so I what I did was I went into the article that I wrote this in. I just grabbed it and pasted it into here. There's a lot of numbers, and so I'll probably just read this. Uh, so the passage in question is Daniel nine twenty five through twenty seven. Let's read that first. So you are uh, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty two weeks. Now we know when this decree happens. Okay, um, this decree is, is talked about in Ezra. Uh, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, end quote. Okay, so this is what I, now I've, in the article in that I'm referencing, which is actually a rebuttal to, um, 119 Ministries and, and uh, Jim Barfield of the Copper uh, Scroll Project. This is in part two, which can be found on Torah Resource. Uh, you have to search it. You can't find it in the articles. You have to search for it. But anyway, um, I say this. I say that in this passage, we are told that the Messiah will be cut off. The temple will once again be destroyed. Most scholars agree that in this passage, Daniel is speaking in groups of seven. Scholars do debate why Daniel breaks the grouping up into two parts, that is, seven and then 62. There are different theories on what might have happened after the first seven. If we take the full number, seven plus 62, it equals 69, and apply it to the to groups of seven, as most scholars believe it should be, that is, 69 times seven, we get a number of 483. This numbering, of course, is problematic for non-believers because if we accept the number 483, As years, the Daniel passage tells us that after 27 CE, the Messiah will be cut off and the temple would be destroyed. This, of course, only works if we accept the decree of the rebuilding of the temple in 457, which there's many reasons, and I go into them, but there's many reasons why scholars place this decree in 457. Some place it a year later. Anyway, I digress. Um, So basically... One of the reasons I love this prophecy so much is because the numbering comes out 
to almost exactly when the Messiah starts his ministry. The Messiah is cut off, right? He's killed. And then what happens? In 70, the temple falls. And has not been built since. And has not been built since. So how are we supposed to... I mean, if Daniel is is not true, if Daniel is is, uh, not a legitimate book, we have a very, very specific prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And not only the coming of the Messiah, but of his death, and then the fall of the temple, which all happened right in the time frame that Daniel says. I mean, the precision is unbelievable. And so even people who argue for a super late date of Daniel, certainly Daniel was, was written before 27 CE. Even if you take a super late date of it, which I don't. So to me, right there, the validity of this book is is nailed down with the fact that Daniel rightly prophesies the coming and the the death of the Messiah and then the fall of the temple. Okay, over to you. Go. Well, on that note, it, um, Daniel is distinguished uh, a certain way. Well, maybe before that, the people who date it late. So in secular academic world, you will hear Daniel is written in the second century BC during the Maccabean reign to, to describe um, in part the whole Antiochus Epiphanes situation. Um, and so that that's where that's put. Now, what's the proof for that? Well, it's just because that's where scholarship want to put it because they're, they don't believe that prophecy is true so it's like written to make it look like it was prophesying but even then they're assuming that it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes but when Yeshua cites Daniel he doesn't ever applies it to Hanukkah story right right and so he when he says uh he cites Daniel 7 for example during the passion when he's before the high priest says you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven that's from Daniel 7 and he that's where the high priest cries out blasphemy and pulls, you know, tears his garment. Okay, so Yeshua's and the high priest's view of Daniel obviously was not that it applied to the Maccabean era and not that it was written then, but that it was older. Now, we do have fragments of Daniel from Qumran also. And so we know that Daniel was accepted as some sort of book even in the Qumran community, although in Qumran is where we have these other things like fragments of jubilees and stuff that looks like the book, you know, various Enochic traditions and stuff like that. And so people think, oh, yeah, see, Daniel just kind of was written at the same time of all this other stuff. But in Daniel, Daniel itself is distinguished. It, it affirms Jeremiah as scripture. Right, because he, in Daniel nine, Caleb, which you were just talking about, he starts. He says, "I was studying the book of Jeremiah, right. prophecies of Jeremiah," and um, he in, also in Daniel nine, he talks about the Torah of Moses. How many times? So it affirms the Torah of Moses. It affirms also that someone would try to chi- change the times and the seasons and stuff like that. Um, and so I don't think that. It the people who want to put Daniel into the second century, it doesn't fit with the with the 364 day calendar. It doesn't fit with um, 
there's other kind of calendrical viewpoints that you find in Enochic and Jubilees and stuff like that. Um, so it affirms Jeremiah. It, so a, a prophetic tradition, it, prefer, it um, affirms Torah of Moses, which is not compatible uh, like calendrically with, with what Qumran was doing. Um, but also, so on the other hand, though, he says, well, what about the Irim, right? The Irim are the watchers. Or, right. you know, Daniel is the only place in the Tanakh where we hear of the angel Gabriel, which actually is called Ish, the Ish Gabriel, uh, the man Gabriel in Daniel uh, 9. But uh, Michael, Michael, is also mentioned in Daniel. Um, and so the question is, well, then how do we know it's legitimate? Well, it was legitimate It because it was there are all these reasons yeshua cites it of course caleb gave the internal reasons for prophetic and and its obvious fulfillment um, but also that it it must have been preserved in the temple because otherwise yeshua if yeshua would have quoted like let's say you know yeshua's in front of the high priest right during his trial and then he cites the book of enoch or something like that they're gonna like that's not even scripture right i mean right. they're not gonna like but if he cited, he cites Daniel, that meant something. That was scripture in the temple. And that's what was preserved in the non-Christian Masoretic tradition. Right. Daniel has its own Masora, which means it has a, it's the scribes were just as meticulous in copying and preserving Daniel as they were with the Torah and with the prophets. That's that, an interesting point that I've never thought of. In I'm sorry to cut you off, but no, I want to make I want to make the I want to see if I'm correct in this. So, when talking with people who believe that the Book of Enoch or Jubilee is canonical, one of the things that we can that we can clearly see is that there's no Mazora. For those who don't know what the Mazora is, the Mazora is the notes that the scribes made to make sure that it was copied correctly and to keep track of everything. And they did. It, they did it with they scripture. Long term, they think we. This is God's word, right. and it needs to last in the world. And and they don't have copy machines. And we don't have any Mazora for Enoch or Jubilees. Interesting. Oh. Plot out. Okay, keep going. And so, in other words, in other words, you had a strong temple centered, temple centric scribal education system that was focused on what we call the now what we call the Tanakh and over time they they sought to preserve it and as the centuries went on they they cultivated an uh, a side body of knowledge pertaining to the proper preservation of the text in other words yeah we know you want to add a vav here be, for hebrew sake but don't add it because it's not there so we'll put a holem there we'll put a little dot so people know that it's an o sound uh whereas we come you contrast that trajectory so we have, and this Emmanuel Tov has written about this, you know, so like basically over a thousand year period, you know, from uh, up to the, the year 1000, we have a, a robust scribal Masoretic quote unquote tradition emerging that is stable. Right. Are you getting parachuted? Ants? Of course, always. Um, whereas the, if you look at the Qumran, the, the, the texts from Qumran that are biblical, whether they're Torah or prophets, there's all sorts of variants. There's variants in spelling. There's additions of words, different words, and it's and there's no uniform. If if 
here's another way to look at it. If all we had was the Qumran library, let's say we let's say there was no preservation of the Bible or anything like that, and we still found this Qumran library, we would, well, and we still thought that there was something called the Torah or whatever. We would see there's no uniform book of Exodus. Like if you look at all the different manuscripts of Exodus and Qumran, there's not one uniform. They they hold multiple variant texts side by side, and and that community died off. They didn't have, they, they, by the time the temple was destroyed, they ran and they fled and they were destroyed. And, and, you know, whatever was stashed in the caves was stashed in the caves for us to find 2000 years later. But we have a clear trajectory through the centuries of what emerges as the Masoretic tradition, which defines the canon of the Tanakh and how it is to be properly copied and transmitted. And if God's, you know, to me, that, that is God's provision. I see that as the oversight of the Holy Spirit in, in spite of the scribes' commitments. You know, right. here's the thing. The scribes, they were not invested, at least in any way we can really measure, measure, measure. Weights um, and measures. It significantly in a rabbinic world or in a Karaite world. They, they weren't about that. And the other contrast there is you, we don't have a Masora for the Babylonian Talmud. Weights you know, you can do the same measures. <laughs> like if you look at the all our Talmud manuscripts from the Middle Ages, same thing. Very different. Very, very different. Why? Because there's no scribal oversight. There was no official right. Babylonian Talmud. All you have is people writing out the different legal arguments and, and stuff according to the structure of the Mishnah. But only in the Masoretic tradition do we have this super high concentrated focus on the on precision of every letter count you know how many letters there are or how many verses in this book what's the middle letter you know how many times is this word spelled defectively versus how many times is it spelled fully where are those places every kind of approach that you could think of that preserves that, that makes sure that the core text is transmitted to the next generation with, with no uh, variation. And Daniel is part of that package. Daniel is part of that package. And it's, it's cited in the apostolic writings, you know? So, um, but it is, it is unique in that it does, like I said, it has, it mentions Gabriel, but we learn, we learn of Gabriel also in, in the, Gospel of Luke, of course. Okay, hang on, just take that because PJ brings up some some questions. Why was Daniel written partly in Aramaic? Also, interesting. God says Daniel, Job, and Noah are his examples of righteousness. Ezekiel fourteen fourteen. So thoughts. Yeah, that's the the Daniel. There is strange because it's spelled Daniel. There's no Yod, and so the question is: Is that the same person? We don't know. Um, but aside from the Ezekiel. Quote. Um, what was the other part? Oh, the half, half. So it's half Aramaic and half Hebrew. So chapter one of the, for those who don't know, chapter one of Daniel is Hebrew. Then chapters two through eight. So the next seven are in Aramaic. And then chapters nine through 14, the last six chapters are Hebrew. So you have one chapter Hebrew, then Aramaic, and then it goes back to Hebrew. So it's like half and half. And I think this, it, it's a really good question. 
I think it has to do with um, recognition of the, first of all, I think it has to do because it's Persian period. It, and, and Aramaic was the language of, of the Persian empire. You know, they used Aramaic. And so, uh, but Hebrew was the specific Jewish language. And so in being preserved in both languages, it is affirming in a way the bilingual nature of, of the Jewish people in the Persian period. Not only that, though, there's Persian. There's a lot of Persian loanwords in, right. in, Arama- in the Daniel Aramaic. There's even a couple Greek terms. And that's one of the reasons, um, uh, like when it, it has the word symph- uh, symphonia, symphonia when it talks about the music. And so people say, oh, see, therefore, because there's Greek, it must be after Alexander the Great. And that's not true. And uh, Ben Noonan gave right. an awesome presentation on this. I was wondering when you were getting to Noonan. Yep. There's Greek. It's not that it, Greek didn't just start existing with Alexander the Great. Greek goes, Greek literature and culture goes way back. And Greek material culture was part of the uh, ancient Near East. And so we have distribution of and so usually things that are material culture like a name of a musical instrument or specific terms that 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 diffuse you know uh, the term just because a term is a greek term doesn't mean it it is a, a hellenistic era flag because material culture is broader and diffuses way ahead of alexander the great and so uh in any event Daniel's Persian period, it's got Persian fingerprints all over it. The, Arama- the half Aramaic, half Hebrew has to do with this um, recognition of diaspora. Daniel is not in the land. He was taken from his homeland and learned a foreign language. And so the dreams of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar and the lion's den and all those stories, those are all in, in Aramaic. Um, and it's a testimony to Gentile kings, right, it, for for the most part, all those stories, you have uh, Aramaic speaking kings that are praising the God of Israel, basically. Um, But then when it shifts in chapter nine to the confessions of sin and that we are under the curse of the Torah because we have sinned, that's back in Hebrew now. And he's anticipating, you know, the return. He's anticipating the return of the the coming of the Messiah, the return of Israel from uh, the exile back to the land, and so it shifts back to Hebrew, which is the original language of of the Torah uh, and of God's people. And so, um, it's a it's a wonderful book. It's a it's a difficult book. You know, um, the language is not always easy. Um, if you want anyway, if you want a good stuff. study on it, my father did an entire uh, I think it's nine session video and audio teaching on the book of Daniel, which can be found. On TorahResource.com. Um, okay, let's move on. We have one final thing that we're going to talk about, and then we'll talk about uh, something else in our Messiah Matters More section. Um, so Clint wrote in, and he said, Since it's the time of Purim, happy Purim, everyone, by the way, I was wondering if Rob and you might be able to discuss the longer version of Esther in the Septuagint. Cool. Oh, sorry, was that the email? Was That's that the email, man. Awesome. Go for it. So Purim is, we celebrated, we had a big pizza party and read the book of Purim, and the kids did a little puppet show that was hilarious. Oh, my goodness. So funny. Our uh, Yeah, our highlight was uh, musical chairs. 
<laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it was like competitive musical chairs. So, so Purim. Okay, this yeah. is interesting. This ties to our Dead Sea Scroll uh, discussion. Esther's the only book not represented in, in the Dead Can, Sea Scrolls. Canonical book. Yeah. Canonical book. Yeah, thank you. Not only that, in all the calendar uh, descriptions from Qumran, Purim's never listed. Neither is Hanukkah. So it would seem that if we can accept the 364-day calendar promoted at the Qumran community and in their literature and their listing of festivals and the, the, the fact that Purim and Hanukkah are lacking, that they did not celebrate Purim or Hanukkah. Okay, so that, that could have to do with this polemic, what they disagreed about with the Jerusalem priesthood, etc., but back to the question. So, yes, it's true, and I think it, it might be in the show notes that you can look at the NETS, the New English Translation of the Septuagint, which is available online. It's Oxford University Press, but they've made it, and you can order the book if you want it, but you can. they've made all the, the PDFs available for download, and you can read translations of the two major recensions, Greek recensions of Esther, with not much intro. There's a little bit of intro on that one can't remember the gal's name who did the translation but basically the core hebrew what's called the megillah so there's another uh, scribally guarded uh text this is esther or the megillah the little scroll right of esther and it's got its own mesora and it is unique among all tanakh because it doesn't mention the name of god right there's they don't pray to god they fast, they have sackcloth and ashes, but God's name is not mentioned. Um, and it's kind of short, it's a like short and to the point book. Now, the Greek Esther, on the other hand, is a, an expanded, it's not just a translation, it has a bunch of other stuff in it. And I just did a quick search, here are some things. It has, it has Lord or Kurios, Lord, God, the God of Abraham. It talks about Israel. It talks about God bringing Israel out of Egypt, right? None of these are in the Masoretic, Masoretic Esther. There's no mention of God, the Lord, Abraham, Israel, or Egypt. Mordecai has dreams, and, and, and the dream is interpreted in the Greek Esther. So there's this whole Mordecai having a dream, da, da, da. That's not in the, in the Hebrew Esther. And there's additional letters going out to tell people to, to celebrate Purim and explain what Purim is. And I see this in alignment with what we see in 2 Maccabees. So 2 Maccabees retells the story of that we read in 1 Maccabees, retells it from a little bit different angle, but it opens up with a letter to the uh, Jewish communities in Egypt saying, you need to celebrate this holiday. Right. There's a holiday called Hanukkah. Let, let us tell you the nuts and bolts of why you want to celebrate it and what it's all about. That's what Second Maccabees does. So there seems to be in the second century BC in the Greek speaking Jewish communities, this effort to promote these holidays. One is Purim. One is Hanukkah. And with the Hanukkah story, they retold the Maccabean story with, and sent it out with a letter saying, celebrate this. This is important. It seems like the same thing was happening with, with the uh, Greek translations of Esther. They added stuff, 
that maybe they did, they thought, well, there's, you know, Mordecai had a dream and, and, and they wanted to tie it into the God of Abraham and the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. So there are sections on that added and the prayers, Esther's prayers, Mordecai's prayers, um, with the encouragement to celebrate Purim, because that is a gap. You know, people will read the Greek or the Hebrew, uh, Esther, and you're like, uh, Okay, well, they never actually prayed to God. God's name's not mentioned. Um, Abraham's not mentioned. Covenant is not mentioned. Yeah, the, the thing the thing in the very, like, uh, Rob sent me this URL right before we came on air about it, half an hour beforehand, so I, I was able to read the introduction to it. And uh, the thing that I know, that, you know, they say all this stuff about the, the different versions in the Greek, and then they say there is no Hebrew, or I'm paraphrasing, there's no Hebrew Aramaic witness to any of these. To right. any of these. Right. And, you know, obviously, I think that uh, that right there tells us, not because not because I think that everything has to be written in Hebrew or Aramaic, but certainly Esther was not written in Greek. Right. And so the point is, is that the original did not have the ex- expanded versions. Right. And I think you're right. I think that the reason that it, that it was expanded is particularly to attach what people thought needed to be added to the story, you know, and maybe even, I mean, the, they wanted to make Mordecai and Esther look like religious Jews. So they prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, right. They remembered, you know, all the stuff that Jews in the Hellenistic era were wanting to remember. Okay. God delivered us from, you know, Egypt and there's a covenant and, you know, and how can we, why read this book and have this holiday if we're not affirming the same stuff right if it's not in the actual book itself so that's that's in my view the best explanation for it for the additions yeah i think you're absolutely right and not only that but even the time periods that they give of when these greek versions were actually written because they oh there's layers yeah there's there's layers of it and uh, it's it's interesting to kind of see like okay what was going on at this time were they actually trying to get esther to be canonical at this time you know were there groups who were saying it is canonical and other groups who were not? Maybe this is one reason to have, oh, look, we found this, we found this version that, you know. Even oh. Daniel, even the Greek, if, if for those who have got the show notes and you're looking at that link, you, if you go back and just look at the main website, you can read the Greek Daniel. Daniel has been expanded in the Greek from the original. And there's other stories like Bell and the Dragon and stuff like this that is part of right. Daniel. And you have real imaginative stories that that happen there. Oh, we see um, this in the New Testament as well, right? I mean, for instance, and obviously, since I'm working in the Book of Acts, one of the uh, one of the things that I have to constantly go back and look at is is Codex D, the Western tradition. And the reason the you know there's 20 percent more of the Book of Acts in the Western tradition than there is in the Eastern tradition. That's and you're like, where does this come from? That's significant. You know, and then the then the uh, the scholarly, what, what, yeah. What do they say about that expansion? Well, it all depends on who you look at, and what passage you're speaking of. So, for instance, the pa- the passage that I've had to look at extensively, in terms, well, actually, I think probably the most interesting one in Acts of the Western tr- tradition is that there's a fifth command in Acts 15 for the Gentiles, right? Um, where we don't have that obviously in the Eastern text. Uh, the the one that has that I've studied the most is actually in Luke. In in Luke, the Western text actually takes out 
a verse and a half of Luke twenty two nineteen, which is, do this in remembrance of me. And so then there's all these different suggestions. Bart Ehrman has, has uh, championed the idea that it was taken out, or that, that it was, uh, that the original didn't have it, and that that was put in by the Orthodox. Um, so I, there's, a, there's a lot that, there's a lot that could be said there. Um, and there's good scholars, and I do mean good, good scholars, who think that the, that the Western text of Acts predominantly is original, which is also interesting. I, I disagree with that. I don't think that that's actually the case. Um, but who knows? That's a, it's a good question. It's always fun to study. I mean, these are the kind of rabbit holes and the kind of, you know, the rabbit trails and, and the, the things that when you start really getting into scholarship and studying what's going on, it's not as, you know, we hear these people, oh, just, you know, people just need to read their Bible. I agree. People need to read their Bible and people need to study their Bible and whatnot. But when you really start looking at the, it's like an onion. You peel one layer off and it just keeps peeling sure. and peeling. And, and, and what peeling. questions are you asking? Right, exactly. Like yeah. what questions are you not that our study of Scripture is question-driven, but Yeshua says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So if we're seeking the things of the kingdom while we're studying Scripture, inevitably, because we're dealing, let's say we're just reading a King James or an NASB or something, at some point I'm going to see, oh, there's a footnote here, like with an ASB or a Net Bible, and it's going to give me a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Right. Right. It's like, Oh, that's right. There's a different, that's wasn't given in English. And there's a whole history of communities of scholars that have labored their whole life to try to make sense of and better understand the facts on the ground. And sometimes, you know, we're naive. We go and we buy a Bible and we, we think, Oh, this is it. And, but, but all that labor and the scholarship and the debates and the heated you know, the arguments and the disputes are all often concealed uh, from us if we're just looking at a nice Bible, you know. Right. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot to, uh, a lot to, to study. Um, okay, this has been a, a good and fun conversation. I hope that it's uh, benefited everybody out there. Yeah, thanks for, it was uh, Robbie and Clint, did you say? Yeah, and then we're... Thank I, you for the great emails. Wow, right. good questions. Tomorrow uh, is when we'll probably post a Messiah Matters More. So for our supporters, please look into the Messiah Matters More on our new site, and you will be able to see that. All right, guys, if you have questions, please send them to chagatorresource.com, chagatorresource.com. Uh, send us uh, show topics or questions or whatever. Uh, that'd be great. Also, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. Um, and let us know what you think and what you want to hear us talk about. We hope that, whoa, we hope that this conversation, sorry, has glorified our great God and the Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.